1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Sally Nyema about her new book, How Girls Achieve. Sally, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Sure. So again, my name is Sally Nyema. I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, but my parents migrated from Ghana in the 1980s, really fleeing a military coup at the time. So they left sort of the 80 degree weather of Accra, Ghana um, and came to this windy city of Chicago where I, again, was raised. I grew up in a really um, sort of 99 percent black community, low income. And uh, I knew sort of early on uh, the sort of disparities that I was Um, had come accustomed to weren't normal. So I became interested in thinking about what it meant to sort of shift that or change that, but wasn't sure how soon. Like many people who um, uh, grow up in a low-income sort of context, school became a central mechanism for thinking about how to improve my life chances and my circumstances. But it wasn't until college where I got the opportunity to go back to Ghana, the homelands of my parents, that I realized that schools weren't just a critical tool or mechanism for Black kids in Chicago, um, but for Black kids from poor backgrounds across the globe. Um, There were essential sort of institutions that could help people who came into this world at a disadvantage have a better life um, experience uh, just through sort of the opportunities that education can afford you. So I became interested in not just sort of using that for myself, but how it could be made available to other young people. And I'm sure we'll talk more in the podcast, but from that came a number of different things, including um, attending um, a, a PhD program at Northwestern University, where I did a dissertation project on Chicago and Philadelphia and sort of Black kids in education and then actually creating a film project on girls in education in Ghana. And that turned into a foundation where we provide scholarships for girls to be the first in their families to go to college. Uh, and also just sort of being involved in sort of the UN and USAID and sort of these other global organizations uh, that were interested in educational issues and trying to improve the trajectories of young people. And through all of that work, I learned a lot about sort of the ability for schools to be these sort of bastions of democracy and tools of equity, but I also learned how they can harm young people. And that's sort of the entry point into how girls achieve.
1: And so that leads to my next question is what inspired you to write how girls achieve?
2: Yeah. So it is, as I said before, a combination of my experiences, but At this particular point of when I decided to turn it into a book, um, it really has to do with recognizing these sort of two facts. One, that while I understood schools were critical mechanisms for improving the life chances of disadvantaged young people, I also understood that schools, in terms of their formal institutions, weren't created with girls in mind. That was just an objective fact. And that because they weren't, that this had lingering impacts and effects on Girls today. Um, And that was something that I felt like needed to be understood uh, more clearly. The second piece of that was recognizing that even as girls were beginning to um, set records and, in some cases, outshine um, their male counterparts in the classroom, that it still was the case that they were underrepresented across every level of social, economic, and political power across the globe. And so These institutions weren't created with girls in mind. And on top of that, um, even as they excel within them, despite coming from a background in which these institutions weren't created for them, they still were struggling to translate that educational power into sort of economic, social, and political power. Um, And I kind of wanted to better understand sort of why that was. Um, And I, through my experiences working directly with young people, Uh, through the film, through my scholarship organization, through my community work, the mentorship, I realized that many girls were succeeding despite attending institutions that were essentially harmful toward them. And even as they would go on to be, you know, straight A students or, you know, top college graduates, that the effect of having to endure um, at an institution that wasn't created with them in mind would still impact their ability to sort of be their fullest and best self and be able to really attain the equity and power that was necessary for them to really be, um, to be fully realizing their potential. Um, And so that sort of formed the basis for why this work was important and was why it was something that I wanted to explore, because it really meant that it was to me kind of a critique of a lot of the educate the girl child campaigns that were being promoted Um, And a lot of the policies that were measuring success of these efforts through the lens of the fact that these girls were sort of succeeding despite their odds or attaining high grades despite their backgrounds. Right. Um, And I'm like, well, they may be successful, but at what cost? Um, And that's what How Girls Achieve tries to explore and understand and figures out how we can create institutions that really mirror the equity um, that we seek.
1: And So the book is really seeking to understand how to address what's missing for girls, what's not working in the, in the current programs that are being instituted around the world. And you focus specifically on three countries in mm-hmm. South Africa, Ghana, and the United States. Mm-hmm. And chapter by chapter, you break down what these really critical steps are that you're just not seeing existing in current policy, but are are crucial to implement. And Mm -hmm. chapter one goes right to the heart of it. Mm -hmm. It's becoming safe. Mm -hmm. And you, you use South Africa as your um, case study for Mm -hmm. that. Although throughout the book, you, you continue to say we have to take a global approach and Mm -hmm. that these, these different case studies are representative of unilateral Mm problems girls are facing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, really that leads to the, the big question of what does it take to create safe spaces for girls? That's uh, something that is really important to you as, as mm-hmm. you go through the book um, and you talk about, and, and perhaps it should be obvious to all of us. And yet until I was reading this, it wasn't ever this clearly laid out for me that schools are not safe spaces for mm-hmm. girls. Mm-hmm. They may be an intellectual haven for mm-hmm. many, but they're not safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's that duality that girls are confronting, every day that they go to school. Um, can you talk about your South Africa um, research and how that really illuminated for you this the crucial first step of these have got to be safe spaces? Yeah, so first I'm
2: going to talk a little bit about um, my experience of meeting the women, or the young women, excuse me, that I profile in the chapter, which this section that I'm going to talk about isn't in that particular chapter, but it gives some important context. And, you know, I get arrived in South Africa. I'd spent a couple um, years there uh, doing work initially for the USAID um, and then the HSRC um, on sort of gender-based issues. And uh, I, as a part of these programs, would meet sort of young people at various stages who were, for all intents and purposes, successful, right? And um, at this particular moment, when I was working on the book, I was working at a school that um, had been really highlighted as a place that took in students who came from really sort of poor backgrounds uh, and uh, were transforming them into these really successful leaders who would go on to attend extremely positive institutions that would then allow them to uh, become doctors and all the traditional career pathways that we know about. Um, so I went to the school and like most schools do, they give you their sort of best and brightest students. (laughs) Um, And so I'm talking to these students who are, you know, top ranked in their classrooms, who um, are uh, really achieving at record levels. And they're telling me about their leadership experiences and their grades and so on and so forth. And then in the midst of just talking to them a little longer, just digging a little deeper, and spending more time with them, eventually they tell you and they reveal um, how they struggle with depression, um, their experiences with sexual abuse, with sexual harassment, um, their um, uh, different pressures that they were experiencing at the intersections of race and gender. And in the book, I specifically talk about a person named Zaniba, who um, was ranked among the top three in her class and uh, actually, led a lot of the um, efforts to sort of diversify the curriculum, and you know, and to create gender-neutral uh, bathrooms. But had actually direct experiences with, and this is a trigger alert with you know um, sexual abuse and and um, rape at the hands of her uh, classmates um, in and on the way to school. And if you just speak to a person like Zaniba. Um, And you don't ask sort of those other questions because of the fact that she's doing well in school. Right. It looks as if she sort of is a success story. The way that we measure success in terms of grades and achievement um, suggests that she is successful. But if you consider the fact that in the process of attending school, she has to experience sexual abuse at the hands of her classmates and within the school setting or in or on her way to school, then what does that achievement sort of really mean, right? Um, And is that school actually still a high-ranking institution if that's where she experienced this violence? And in the way that we currently think about success of Educate the Girl Child campaigns or the success of students who defied the odds um, are only measured by the fact that she got A's um, and not by the abuses that she endured. And so when I think about and I dream about what it would mean to create a safe space for these kids or even what it means for them to succeed and achieve. Um, To me, it means that they aren't subjected to violence, that they aren't subjected to abuse, um, that they're not in a position where um, their school can still be considered high-ranking, even as it's a site of sexual violence. Um, And those girls really, I think, drilled that in me and taught me that by being courageous enough to talk about their experiences and to talk about the damaging effects that it had on the way they see themselves and their ability to navigate the world. And so it became clear to me that before we can talk about A's, before we could talk about even learning math, before we could talk about college completion, we have to talk about the institutions that these young people attend and making sure that those places are places where they don't experience abuse Um, And so therefore, that those places are actually safe spaces. And the last thing I'll say um, related to this is kind of what it looks like to create a safe space. So we know that there are programs. um, I talk about them in my book where, you know, people may attend a program after school that talks about, you know, safety and protecting oneself or um, these things are often seen as sort of separate um, from sort of the daily Attendance at a classroom, but this is not just about the South Africa. Even in the U.S., one in seven girls report feeling unsafe in or on their way to school. Um, you know, over seventy percent of girls report feeling like they're judged as a sexual object. Um, and uh, so, when you create an institution um, that takes seriously the fact that uh, safety is a concern for a large majority of its students, um, I think that that means privileging of those kinds of programs um, and those kinds of policies that would ensure that they're not being subjected to violence and that if they are experiencing violence, that that actually matters for the outcomes of that institution. And currently, it's, it's the case that for most institutions across the world, it doesn't.
1: And you also at that school met a student named Kai, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whose needs for safety were a bit different. And they were about emotional safety, about gender acceptance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how schools need to address that as well?
2: Yes. So Kai was a student who um, identified as non-binary. And uh, because of that, would say, sometimes I feel like I want to dress like traditionally a boy. Some days I want to dress traditionally like a girl and sort of that doesn't affect my ability to learn, which it doesn't, right? There's no research that suggests that um, the way a person dress affects their ability to learn. And so wanting to have the freedom to be able to do that Um, and was attending an institution like several institutions across the world that has very prescribed ideas about how to perform gender uh, based on very narrow ideas of gender. So girls, if you wear a uniform, wear skirts, even if it's cold outside. Right. (laughs) Um, And it practically doesn't make sense. And, you know, boys wear their, you know, wear shorts or pants and then girls have to wear their hair in a particular way. Um, And so Kai was subjected to these really restraining and constraining ideas of gender, um, despite not identifying with any of those genders and so tried to take it upon themselves to institute gender-neutral bathroom policies, gender-neutral uniform policies, hair policies, and was subjected to from classmates as well as some of the teachers uh, to a lot of um, jokes and punishment um, and was essentially um, bullied and laughed at. Um, And I talk about this more in detail in the book. And while people may have seen this as um, something that, oh, she'll you know, that Kai would have to deal with in the real world anyway. For Kai, what that meant is that she, they emotionally essentially suffered. And so uh, Kai had multiple experiences with um, depression, uh, had to seek out counseling, Kai had experiences with, like suicidal um, ideation, uh, because Kai struggled to really feel accepted in an environment that wasn't really open to uh, their non-binary gender identity. uh, And that became a struggle. And again, Kai, for all intents and purposes, ends up doing extremely well academically, is a leader in the classroom. Um, But what does that matter uh, when, because of their institution's inability to make Kai feel safe, Kai is uh, not emotionally distraught, depressed, you know, considering suicide and wanting to hurt, um, hurt themselves. And so this then becomes the primary thing that we talk about, right? Not their good grades, not their academic success, right? None of that. It becomes, how can this institution be a place where I can feel safe? Um, fortunately, Kai was able to benefit from counseling services. And I talk a little bit about the power of sort of these trauma-informed counseling services, for helping CHI cope. But ultimately, we want an institution that doesn't harm their students, right? That's ultimately what we're after. Um, and I think that that would have made a huge difference in enabling CHI to be at a point where they didn't have to emotionally suffer and then get support um, if that is, if institutions took seriously their safety.
1: And- That's an overriding concern of the book, that lack of safety is linked to race, class, and gender disadvantage, and that academic success does not guarantee safety. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you really keep illustrating ways that most schools do not exist as safe spaces, but instead, as you said, just offer safe programs, which is helpful, but they're insufficient. Mm -hmm. Um, And having the counselors, you say, is really important because girls otherwise are told to just deal with it. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how telling a girl to just deal with it is grossly insufficient?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So I I should back up and say that the U.S.,
2: Ghana, and South Africa were cases that I decided to focus on. One, because people tend to see these issues that I'm describing um, as things that are specific to places that have laws um, that are viewed as more arcane here. You know, for example, places that don't allow women to drive or, um, or just a developing country context. And what I note in the book is that all of these countries, low income, middle, um, high income, are places that explicitly claim to have commitments towards gender equality um, and gender equity. Um, and, uh, but they're all places where they are, Uh, female students or those who identify as uh, women report um, that they are feeling unsafe and that they are um, in a position where they're experiencing trauma um, as a result of their experiences at these institutions. And so what ends up transpiring is that these young people are told essentially to be gritty, to be resilient, uh, to persist, Uh, to be confident, right? These individual sort of characteristics become the solution. And that's in so many ways, the same way of saying like, suck it up. Um, And so young people try, I see them endure. (laughs) uh, But the cost of that is the trauma that I'm describing, is the depression that I'm describing, um, is the feeling of uh, not being heard. And objectively speaking, it means that, you actually haven't disrupted power. Um, And so they are not going to actually be in a position where they get power. Um, So these girls go on to do well. They end up being successful. They persist as they're being told. They experience this trauma and they don't actually access power, right? Because being resilient and gritty and persisting doesn't actually lead to the disruption of the power or redistribution of power. And that's what they ultimately need to feel free to be themselves and to be able to change the policies that are required for them to actually not have to endure and to create a safe space. Um, and so they end up experiencing these things over and over again at the various levels um, that they end up going on to pursue, um, especially at the intersections of race and gender and um sort of the lower income status that they're engaged with. So part of this project, a big part of this project is pushing back against sort of ideas of grit or resilience or sucking it up or persistence. Or you can find the word confidence uh, because they are actually not addressing the root issue, um, you know, patriarchy. They're not addressing sexism. They're really just mechanisms to cope. Um, And those mechanisms to cope are even weak because they don't actually disrupt power. Um, And that's at the root of the concerns that the girls that I work with are dealing with.
1: And what you really show in the book, and especially in the final chapter, is that, in fact, rather than disrupting power, it's disrupting the girl's health, that the amount of extra work and effort that they have to put in to defy the odds requires them to neglect their physical well-being, their emotional well-being. And then as they go into a profession and they have to then face the barriers there, they have to redouble their efforts. Mm -hmm. So the amount of work that girls are doing is taking an, an extraordinary toll on them while the system is continuing to operate in the same way.
2: Absolutely. Um, And there's a lot of uh, work that I cite um, in the book, but also work outside of that, that suggests that, you know, this has direct uh, consequences on one's, um, you know, physical health, as we mentioned already, their emotional health, and probably explains why we see differences in, you know, maternal um, child Um, health. So the fact that black women are the most likely to die um, while in labor. Um, And uh, and there's a suggestion that racial trauma is probably playing a really important role um, in those disparities, uh, because even though these women are persisting and eating healthy and doing all the things, they're not only subjected to racism and sexism on a regular basis, um, but they're bodies are, right? Like their physical bodies are affected by their experiences with these burdens over the course of one's life. Um, and so uh, even as people are told to sort of push through um, or and even if, even as they do yoga and all the self-care ideas that people sort of put out there, they don't they're not a match for the kinds of trauma at the intersections of racism and sexism um, and sort of class uh, oppression that these people are experiencing over the course of their lives. Um, and so that is felt, as you mentioned, physically, you know, mentally, emotionally. And um, and like I said, there's a lot of good work showing that if you add that to the fact that by the time you get to the doctor, <laughs> you're also um, being subjected to less Equal care uh, because of like explicit and in- implicit biases, uh, then you can understand how that literally translates to people living shorter and lower quality lives. Um, and so, the school building is such an important institution to me because I think that it's a space where most people experience at some point in their life. Um we spend a lot of time there. I also think that schools have the ability and have been historically at some points um, a place where it, can, it doesn't have to just be what society is. It doesn't have to just reflect the inequities of society. It can actually model the equity that we seek. Um, and so if schools can be places that try to model that equity, model that disruption of power, model that safety, Uh, then I think that that can really have important impacts on disrupting other aspects of society as well. Um, And but if they sort of aren't intentional, right, um, then I think that what you'll actually see and what's been promoted um, are these very narrow notions of success that are just about getting good grades or these very narrow notions of schooling as just spaces where you go and learn, um, you know, this particular uh, subject um, and not understanding that these schools really should be places that incubate um, young people to live in a society that's really representative of democracy uh, in the most sort of ideal version, right, um, that we're after,
1: And you really lead with that in the opening of the book. You say no institution or social system is more likely to improve the life trajectory of the disadvantaged than schools. Mm -hmm. Not voting, not infrastructure, not employment, schools. And you really get into that in chapter two, where you talk about what we need are feminist schools. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you mean by a feminist school um, and how that will directly benefit all the students of all genders.
2: Yeah. So a lot of times when I talk about how girls achieve or gender or uh, femininity, uh, there's a perception that it's sort of not for other groups. I mean, the truth is that when you focus on Black girls, uh, because they're at the intersections of so many oppressions, especially low-income Black girls, right? Classism, sexism, racism. If you're able to find a solution that addresses their plight, then you're also addressing so many other um, oppressions that affect all of us, right? And so it can hopefully be freeing for all of us. We also have to understand that, you know, um, the constraints of patriarchy are very toxic for young men too. Um, And it allows, or puts them in a position where they can't fully um, experience uh, the complete spectrum, right, of sexuality, of emotions, Um, you know, of the world. And so uh, when we center black girls and we center the their experiences and their op- with oppression, then I think we can come up with solutions that actually are framed for everyone. Um, and I think specifically, I talk about feminist schools um, through the lens of not a traditional feminist uh, framework, but actually through a more black feminist framework uh, that thinks about womanism and thinks about the multiplicity of this basic idea of feminism that genders can be equal, <laughs> right? Or, um, and, and that inherent in that is this idea that institutions must be and should be anti-racist, anti-sexist, um, and really focused on kind of what I call like liberatory practices. So this idea that people could be free to do what they want to do um, and that racism or sexism or classism shouldn't be something that constrains them from being able to do that. And um, so feminist schools center that. So when I think about feminist institutions, I think about the fact that an institution couldn't be a quality school, in my view, um, and 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 see that as a race-neutral or a gender-neutral undertaking. A feminist school actually says equity is sort of what we're after, anti-racism is what we're after, anti-sexism is what we're after. And so we're looking at all the practices of our institution, and we're asking ourselves, are they meeting the criteria of anti-sexism, of anti-racism, of anti-classism? Are we putting people in a position where they can feel safe um, and thus be able to experience like liberation, right? Like the freedom to be who they want to be. <laughs> um, that also looks like, a. and if we're looking at all the practices of the institution, then we're also looking at the curriculums, right? So we're asking ourselves, are we centering the narratives of those who've traditionally been othered? Um, And making it clear sort of um, that there's a multiplicity of experiences that exist sort of in the world and that are important that should be centered. Um, But most importantly, they really do protect, I think, young people from threats that say, um, because you are a girl, you should wear a skirt or you should engage in a particular way. Um, Or because you are a boy, you should engage in a particular way um, and instead create an infrastructure um, that um, really allows young people to sort of do what they want, what they want. I know that sounds kind of simple, but that's currently just not the case. Um, It's the case that if an institution does, you know, really well, you know, in chemistry or in math, um, it's considered a quality institution and that's all that matters Most institutions don't uh, center their entire um, framework or even their notions of achievement around the idea of racial and gender equity, first and foremost, right? Um, And ask themselves how that affects our bathroom policies, right? So um, how that affects our uniform policies, uh, how that affects our um, traditions, That's a big pushback I get from all girls schools is, well, they've always worn the the white dresses as their uniform. And I'm like, it's 20 degrees outside, you know, (laughs) not only is it not equitable, it's not practical. (laughs) Um, And so so how those things affect our traditions and really trying to gauge uh, what it would look like to um, take seriously this idea that um, the things that we have done were built on an idea of institutions that did not take seriously girls being here. Um, And so we actually have to do more work to remodel our institutions um, in a way that uh, really reflects, like I said, the equity uh, that we're we're going for. Um, And so, like I said, and I talk about in the book, I show how people do that by advocating for uh, gender-neutral uniform policies, gender-neutral hair policies, uh, curriculums that center indigenous and black and trans and uh, non binary uh, young people. Uh, those are all sort of examples of the ways in which, from hiring to curriculum, um, an institution can be a feminist place if it centers anti racism and sexism and all the things that it does.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: And one of the places that you studied and that you visited was a key Uh, through fourth grade Mm -hmm. in the United States. That was a girls' school. And you really vividly take us into that school. Mm -hmm. You, You tell us what's on the walls. You tell us what's in the hallways. You tell us what they sing and how they spend their day. And this particular school opens in a way that is really interesting and unique. And can you really take us to that setting and tell us about this school and how it in many ways is embodying the various things that you're advocating for?
2: Yeah. So my second chapter, Becoming Feminist, uh, I opened it up in that way after leaving this school and sort of thinking about how if there was a such thing as a certified feminist institution, you know, this would institution would be in the running, right? So I walk into the classroom and there's pictures of Lena Horne and various Black Lives Matter founders and, um, you know, a, a, an a entire curriculum that is dedicated uh, to the telling, the experiences of Black women, Um and making that actually central to every single thing that was being taught um, there. And I walk into this classroom and uh, women, young women uh, who are teaching these students look like those who they're teaching, right? So 60% of the institution is uh, people of color, um, including the leadership. So they look like those who they're teaching and they're teaching these young people how to center themselves and how to have models that aren't just sort of the president of the United States, but that are community uh, leaders, community organizers, our ambassadors. Um, And they're giving them these sort of diverse, these very diverse experiences uh, that honestly look completely different than your traditional American school. Um, And so I became super interested in thinking about, Uh, what that meant for these young people. And what it meant is that it acknowledged that to be Black in an American context came with it certain traumas and certain experiences of inequity and racism and sexism. And so this institution was understanding that a big part of what they needed to do was to center that and to help young people process what they were seeing, and what they were going through. So one example, for example, excuse me, one example is the letter writing campaign that they had young women of the school do um, in response to the death of Tamir Rice and Rikia Boyd. And so instead of just talking about this thing, they actually helped young people learn about the movement, engage in the news, and process what they were going through, right? And that was a central part of the curriculum. And this is, what, four or five years ago? Um, So before It's now uh, a topic that I think is becoming more part of the mainstream um, because they understood that young people were going to be exposed to this anyway. And one question I get often is like, is it too early to talk about these issues? Uh, You know, is it? it, And it's not (laughs) because for those growing up in the United States, if you're black and you're a girl or if you're just a black person growing up in the United States, you're being exposed to racism and sexism very early on anyway. Um, And then you attend institutions that don't include you in their curriculums. And then when these tragic events happen, um, don't give you a way to process them. I mean, this institution did the opposite of that. This institution said, we know that we serve young Black people. We know what the young Black people we serve go through. And we're going to give them a way to not only process the trauma associated with their identities, but we're going to lift them up. Right. And so there was also activities that were provided uh, to help them sort of dream and take those things that they had been taught were deficits um, and view them as things that were, you know, positive. I mean, that was a common part of their sort of everyday. So in the book, I open up talking about or showing that they started off um, with their each of their classrooms being named after a college, for example. Right. And they sort of have chance where they're being affirmed for who they are not only as people who potentially go to college, but also as just like beautiful and black young people. Right. Uh, and so that becomes a critical part and sort of, I think, modeling what a feminist institution looks like. Cause again, you have a classroom that looks like the people whom, excuse me, a classroom that's led by the people who look like the young people they're teaching. You have a curriculum that takes seriously as centers uh, the young Uh, black uh, students that they're teaching um, that gives them a way to process what they're experiencing and that lifts them up as well. And I think that becomes a critical, in my view, uh, way of modeling the kind of feminist schools that I'm, that I'm thinking about.
1: And that's something that when you talk to Kai, for example, Mm -hmm. in South Africa, who do you, you asked them, who do you go talk to? who can you trust of the, of the, you know, academic leadership? And it was very difficult Mm -hmm. because the people running the school did not share life commonalities really with the people attending the school. Mm -hmm. And this created a a divide and some of the educators were aware of it and were trying to um, acknowledge it and work to uh, see how they can bridge that gap. But Others seem to just be unaware of their white privilege.
2: Yeah, they're at that school um, in South Africa, which is a nation that is over 80 percent black, over 80 percent of the teachers in that school were white. Um, and this meant that the black people who attended that institution did not have, for the most part, enough black Uh, teachers and those in leadership to go to, uh, to talk about the different things that they were experiencing. Um, And this was a problem. We also know just from research um, that Black students tend to feel more comfortable uh, talking to teachers who look like them and actually do better academically when they're taught by um, teachers that look like them, Uh, probably because they're less likely to be subjected to the same kind of racism, but also because the expectations that people who look like them have of them, I think are higher. And that plays a really critical and important role. And so, yeah, Kai, I think, you know, really is honest (laughs) about the fact that, yeah, these are some well-meaning white people um, who really are trying to help. um, And it's what I have, so I'll take it. Uh, But certainly I don't feel like I have the kind of um, support that I need, right? And that support would probably come from, you know, someone who looks like me and thus can really um, connect with the experiences that I've been having. And I think that really, uh, you see the contrast um, in the institution that I focus on and becoming feminist when they are actually able to see role models teaching them right in front of the classroom um, and through the curriculum, right? Because Kai is in a situation where they're learning about Shakespeare and they're in South Africa in a country that's 80 percent black and that has a long history of racial oppression and a long literature that has come out of that and before that. Um, But they're learning about Shakespeare and and learning new European classes and fighting to get um, African-American, excuse me, black studies classes centered in this context. Right. And then you have a in contrast, like I said, this school, um, this K to four institution where that's the main thing they're learning, right? Are black studies and different examples of black people whom were uh, fighting various battles. And it gives them a sense that they come from this long line of people whom have been through what they've been through before, but also it gives them models, right? For who they can be in the future. Um, and I think it really makes all the difference.
1: And you you quote Principal Knight in, the, in this chapter, in mm-hmm. chapter two, about um, becoming feminist and feminist schools mm-hmm. that she says, it's good to hear that people can struggle, but they come out stronger Mm -hmm. on the other end. Mm -hmm. And that was why she had Toni Morrison's Mm -hmm. poster on the wall. Why, when they were choosing their different value of the month, they felt that Misty Copeland Mm -hmm. really embodied that month's value. So the students were learning about Misty Copeland, why Lena Horne's poster is on the wall, why they did this project about Essence Magazine. Can Mm -hmm. you talk to that? Because that I thought was just a wonderful project that the students seemed very engaged in.
2: Yeah, the, um, it was interesting. So when, when I came into the classroom or the school, they had these Essence Magazine posters on the wall, and some of them were actual magazines, um, of various sort of, uh, women mainly featured um, on the walls. And then others were their creations of their own versions of these magazines uh, that centered um, uh, women whom they admired um, and had them sort of, and what they were meant to do was to kind of talk through why these various people inspire them. Um, And what we found, you know, you know, what you, what you see I should start by saying is that they're able to really look at different aspects of these women's backgrounds and and take from them as principal Knight said their sort of struggle um, and the way in which they overcame that struggle and I think that becomes really critical for helping them get the skills um, that are necessary for, what they're going to need to navigate their own lives, right? Um, they're able to understand, okay, what did this person do? Um, and how do they overcome? And what can I take from that, right? Um, but you also found that they had various examples of success through that. So yes, Lena Horne, who's very well known, but as I said before, also like a Black Lives Matter activist, right? And so they're able to get various examples of what success sort of looks like uh, through um, through this exercise. And then one other key thing is they're able to sort of build up their own um, sense of self. So if this particular person wears glasses, right? And they do too. Um, They're able to get through the affirmations around um, people who uh, may walk through the world in a different way or have different abilities, um, but then are still successful in various uh, forms. And so These kinds of projects like the Essence Magazine project where they're looking at these sort of real magazines and they're creating them for themselves and they're lifting up various uh, people from the past who look like them and who have had struggles and have been the first but have overcame, right? I think give them a sense of a reality that because of their race and their gender, like Lena Horne, they may um, experience these various challenges um, but they can also endure, right? Um, and they learn from those experiences how to do that as well. And that's a key part of the book as well, right? It's kind of saying what we need first and foremost are safe institutions and ultimately for patriarchy and racism and sexism and classism and all of that to sort of go away, <laughs> to put it you know simply. Um, but we also know that as young people are, in an environment where they're going to continually be faced with these challenges, Uh, they need a way uh, to engage in the world. Uh, They need a set of skills to face and confront what they're going through. Um, And I think that through these exercises and through these examples, they get that.
1: And that's a recurring theme throughout the book, which is that how girls are taught matters. Mm-hmm. And you say that approaches that focus on fixing the girl mm-hmm. rather than on her environment are harmful to girls. And so that was part of why this feminist school uh, in the United States was, was such a wonderful uh, example of how teaching girls is, is really the approach that's really missing in a lot of the models about um, that are worrying about equity access. Um, Because one of the things you're talking about is simply allowing girls to enroll in the school or creating laws or policies that say, yes, the girls are going to go to school, doesn't actually address the inequities. There are a number of things that are unique to girls' circumstances. Mm -hmm. Family resistance, puberty, Mm -hmm. you mentioned toilets, the Mm -hmm. book talks about flush toilets, sanitary Mm -hmm. pads, home chores, um, cultural expectations. Can you talk... um, Briefly about some of those specifically gendered things Mm -hmm. that simply saying, well, now girls can do what boys do Mm -hmm. is missing so much of what it is to be a girl and what girls are dealing with. And a lot of that girls are you show throughout the book are just keeping hidden from the educators. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're
1: doing this in addition to competing with the boys. And you argue Mm -hmm. in the book that, no, we need to really take all of this into account that is Girls' Lives to be truly feminist. Exactly, yeah. So I open up the book
2: talking about the example of a young person uh, who is at an institution that is considering the fact that this girl may have a different set of experiences because, you know, she has a uterus (laughs) that um, another institution doesn't take as seriously and sort of the effects of that. And I basically talk about how, what that translates to is that the girl who doesn't attend an institution that takes seriously her gender ends up going to school less, right? Just literally doesn't come to school as much because while she's menstruating, she just stays at home because she's at an institution that doesn't actually have flush toilets Um, and the other person is a institution that has flush toilets, right? Or we can fill it in and say has free pads available, right? But the other institution doesn't have free pads available. And I bring up the example of flush toilets and pads because they show why you can't just take something that was for men and then say, okay, now women can have it, and that creates equality. You know, it doesn't. Um, And it doesn't because these Uh, young men who were attending these institutions weren't actually in a situation where they would need sanitary pads or they would need flush toilets when they're on their period. Uh, But that's what these girls need, right? Or that's part of what they need. Um, And so the impact of this is that even if these students go on to earn high grades, you know, they've had to now do that in the context of being at a school only 20 days out of the month as opposed to you know, the full 30, or they've had to do this in a context where they are um, literally experiencing more stress and anxiety trying to navigate their periods uh, while at school. Um, and so this was something that from a practical perspective, I thought was really important to um, address because not only in terms of schools, but in general, anything that's been kind of made available that was once a school once not available for a particular group of people and that is now made available to them, you know, uh, doesn't actually necessarily solve the problems that that group that was excluded is experiencing. And so if you're taking seriously what it means for girls to attend these institutions, if you're taking seriously what it means to make sure that the cost that they're enduring, the costs are spread fairly, right? That there's no additional burdens of attending Um, or succeeding at that institution as compared to um, others, right? Like that is at the core of the feminist school like idea, right? Like what would it look like, you know, for everyone who attends this institution to really be experiencing, you know, that school fully without added burdens, without different burdens. Um, And a, a way that I think institutions could do that when we're talking about menstruation, for example, is a free ability of sanitary pads. And when I bring in flush toilets, people are often surprised, but places like Ghana, only 40% of the schools were built with bathrooms. In South Africa, only 60% of the schools are built with bathrooms. You know, in the U.S., there's still areas, especially indigenous areas, where um, flush toilets aren't readily available to young people or where toilet paper, toilet paper isn't in your Typical public school in the U.S. because they've run out or people have taken it because they needed it for their own home because they're from a poor environment. And so if you don't have toilet paper, you know, in that school, then that creates a situation where if a girl is using the restroom or on a period, she can't use the restroom that day. Right. And so there's ways in which, like, even from just a everyday physical attendance standpoint it is really difficult for uh, girls to be experiencing uh, education and striving to succeed in a way that is, you know, fair, that doesn't feel like they're experiencing more burdens as compared to other groups. And I think that because girls have done well um, academically, that really gets obscured and undermined. Um, But it doesn't, but that doesn't mean that uh, they're experiencing, what they're enduring is is uh, less important uh, because they're doing well academically, especially if in the end, it doesn't actually translate to economic, social or political power. Um, and my guess is that over time it can't uh, because it's actually uh, pretty exhausting <laughs> to have to keep fighting these various burdens uh, to be able to exist um, in a space where another group of people don't have to experience that same thing. Um, and so, yeah, so, so at the core of this is really making sure that those burdens are shared fairly um, and that that means taking seriously what it means for a particular body, right, um, to exist in like a physical space, right, like and comfortably and in a way where they can thrive free of, of challenges just like anyone else.
1: And chapter three really illustrates many of the points that, that you've made. Um, it focuses on a school in Ghana, the Academy Prep Secondary School. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not a desirable place to go to school mm-hmm. until Headmistress Mary came mm-hmm. in 2007 and really uh, made tremendous changes. However, uh, there are important things that you point out about you know, the lack of gender parity Things like, even though they've got free schools, there are still fees Mm -hmm. for the free schools. Mm -hmm. Home requirements on girls include water fetching, and Mm -hmm. the family cannot go without the girl doing that. So she'll have to do that before school, Mm -hmm. effectively wearing her out before she's going for her full school day. Mm -hmm. Um, There are academic tracks the teachers put the girls on. Mm -hmm. Um, And another uh, concern that you bring up, and trigger warning for that, which is... Um, the sexually transmitted Mm -hmm. grades. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how those things, which would be hidden if the girls didn't feel safe to talk Mm -hmm. to an educator about them are continuing to create lack of parity and access? Yeah. One thing
2: that is important to note is um, as these educate the girl child campaigns, you know, became more popular and countries adopted them Uh, This meant that several schools that previously weren't um, allowing or maybe weren't promoting the education of girls became much more susceptible to having them there. Uh, Girls attended these institutions. I observed them go there and and, uh, thrive in many ways. Uh, But because those institutions didn't really change, uh, this meant that now you had a higher group of girls attending the institution, but a lot of the teachers were still male. Um, And it meant that the spaces really hadn't changed at all um, outside of the fact that uh, they now had girls in them. Um, And so what we saw is that the rates of uh, experiences with sexual abuse also increased, um, because if you have an environment that uh, was, again, created not with girls in mind, um, and thus probably had a lot of practices of patriarchy and sexism anyway. And then you bring a whole lot of girls to that space, which you're probably going to get. And what we saw uh, are basically uh, girls being the victim of these patriarchal policies, of these sexist practices. And so their rates of sexual abuse increased as well. And so what that would look like is girls wouldn't actually be given the accurate grade um, if they hadn't engaged in certain sexual favors first. Um, and this meant that uh, girls felt like I have the opportunity to go to school and I've always wanted this opportunity and being able to go to school is going to make a difference in my life. And so I have to choose between being able to continue down this trajectory or give that up um, if I don't um, say yes uh, to this Uh, request um, to be um, essentially abused sexually by what should be my educator. Um, And these educate the girl child campaigns and policies don't end up um, seeing this abuse because these girls that I've worked with that have known for over 10 years end up doing well anyway, right? Academically, they are successful. Um, And so the policy is considered a success. These girls go on to college, um, but they are disproportionately impacted um, by the violence uh, that they've endured at the hands of male teachers and male administrators. Uh, And I had known this and I wrote about this. And then, you know, there was a story called Sex for Grades that came out that showed just how pervasive it was throughout the country. Um, And I know from my research that it is not only in you know, uh, Ghana, but it is all over, it is in the U.S. I'm from Chicago. Chicago also released a report that showed that hundreds of young girls had been sexually abused um, and it had not been reported for fear of losing funding, right, and fear of it going uh, public and creating problems for the institution and the school district. Um, and so this is, I think, probably this, this particular aspect is why I write the book in the tone that I do. Uh, It is completely unacceptable and quite frankly disgusting um, that a space that's supposed to be meant for improving the lives of young people uh, ends up being, for many of them, their first sight of sexual violence, their first experiences with rape, um, and that that is not particular to any single institution, that it's pervasive across elementary schools and high schools and colleges. Uh, Even in the U.S., many women have their first experience of sexual abuse at college and at some of our best colleges, Um, and they remain our best colleges because our perceptions of achievement, our rankings, do not account for that. Um, And I think that's really just a fundamental and essential issue um, across all of these efforts that claim to care about quality, that claim to care about achievement, that, you know, that claim to care about um, uh, even gender equality, right? Um, uh, because it just doesn't take seriously the fact that uh, women continue to have these terrible and horrific experiences with sexual violence, often at the hands of, of men.
1: And you give some staggering statistics about youth in America, and I know we were just talking about Ghana, Um, but also one of the things that you urge us to do is think globally, that if it's happening Mm -hmm. in one place, it's happening in other places, as you pointed out, with these uh, prominent American colleges Mm -hmm. with stellar reputations, Mm -hmm. unless you really did a detailed study of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And that would create a totally different measure. Mm-hmm. So we don't do that. Mm-hmm. We, we keep their wonderful reputation and mm-hmm. girls internalize the shame mm-hmm. and um, it stays the status quo. Mm-hmm. And so as you give these statistics, um, one of them is that one in seven girls is absent from school because she felt unsafe on her way to school. Mm-hmm. And that this number is three times higher for special needs girls, mm-hmm. trans students. Mm-hmm lesbian girls, and bisexual girls. Mm -hmm. And that 76% of girls report feeling unsafe in their daily life. And 69% of girls, and we're talking girls, Mm -hmm. not young women, girls, Mm -hmm. feel judged as a sexual object. Mm -hmm. And one of your arguments again and again in the book is that, yes, girls do persist despite this, but why? (laughs) Why would we ask them to? Mm -hmm. Why would we put that cost of trauma Mm
2: -hmm.
1: on girls and as you have said you know earlier and as you were speaking this depletes them Mm -hmm. at what cost do they high achieve graduate and go on and so in the few minutes we have left Mm -hmm. I wonder if you would like to address that and how Mm -hmm. this myth of confidence Mm -hmm. if girls just have more confidence this is what will close the gap. That we come up with rhetoric again and again. She persisted, Mm -hmm. have grit, lean in, be confident. Mm -hmm. That continues to put the burden on girls. Mm -hmm. And what you are striving to do again and again in the book is open up the silences, Mm -hmm. open up the hidden places and say, this is what a day is for a girl. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be. It should be go to school and learn. And that's what the policy says. Girls can go to school and learn the same as boys. Mm-hmm. It is not the same as boys. Exactly. In the few minutes we have left, what what is do you hope listeners and readers will take away? And what do you want us to know about this pervasive problem?
2: Yeah. I want it to be clear that a majority of our girls all across the globe don't feel safe. That even if they attend a good school and they get good grades and they go off to good colleges and they have good careers, that they are enduring mental, emotional, and physical abuse at the institutions that are meant to protect them. And what this translates to is that they're actually experiencing a burden that no other person has to experience and should experience. And when we focus on the idea of confidence or the fact that they're resilient or that you know they can persist or the value of leaning in, we're undermining the fact that those ideas place the burden on the girl and the blame on the girl. Um, and so it doesn't actually address the fact that what we really need to do is dismantle the patriarchal and racist structures that black and brown young girls and really all girls and all children find themselves in. And so while we may look at these young people who persisted as success stories, uh, we may view their achievement as meaningful for various reasons. That achievement may be valuable um, if society was actually an equitable place. But in an inequitable society, in that society that we're in, that achievement is actually a myth. In the inequitable society that we live in, it's really imperative that schools do not harm their students. And we really do harm them when we enforce them to endure inequities in the name of an achievement that invisibilizes their struggles. So I really dream of an institution, you know, for myself and for young people that I know and, you know, my Potential children up um, a space where they can enter and feel that like they can wholly and fully and freely be themselves, and that they don't have to endure additional burdens to attain uh, academic success, and that that academic success exists in a society that's actually equitable and democratic, um, and you know, and that in my view is what feminism is and what it looks like. Um, And so I really do dream of a feminist institution that allows young people to just be free to be. And I'll stop there.
1: I wish you didn't have to. There's so much more in the Mm -hmm. book that I would love to ask Mm -hmm. you about and share with our listeners. But we know they can pick up a copy of the book and learn more about this. It's been great talking with you today. Before we wrap, can you tell us a little bit about the project that you're working on now?
2: Absolutely. So. I am really excited about this uh, next project, which is still, again, at the intersections of race and gender, um, and is still sort of interested in thinking about this another paradox. <laughs> um, and this time, it's um, in thinking about uh, this dichotomy of um, Black women being superlative political participators. They vote almost more than any other group in the United States. In fact, in 2012, they voted at like a rate of 70 percent. So it's pretty impressive. Uh, But we also know that they're increasingly the fastest growing prison population. Black girls are the fastest growing juvenile justice population. They're suspended at higher rates than any other group except Black boys. Um, And while Black girls represent 23 percent of preschoolers, they represent Preschoolers they represent 54% of those suspended from preschool. We know that for black men, what that basically translated to was that they ended up participating at higher rates when they stopped participating at higher rates once they experienced higher experiences of punishment. Um, and so far we're not seeing that drop among black women. And so my next project is really interested in thinking about those experiences with punishment that black girls are experiencing, the gendered nature of that punishment. Um, And its consequences for how they see themselves as citizens, for how they view democracy and their participation in it, and their views about what it would look like for democracy to really serve them
1: sounds like a really important study. I invite you to come back and talk to us about that when it's finished and you're ready. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Sally, and telling us about your book, How Girls Achieve. You've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.